Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Music Biz Weekly Podcast. I'm one of your two co-hosts, Jay Gilbert. Uh, Mike Brandvold is out this week, um, but he will be back next week. I know I said that last week, but I'm telling the truth this week. So we have a great guest today. Um, but before we get into that, um, I want to thank our sponsors. Uh, first of all, Banzoogle, built by musicians for musicians. Banzoogle is an all-in-one platform that makes it easy to build a beautiful website and EPK for your music. Banzoogle powers the websites of tens of thousands of musicians around the world, from weekend warriors to Grammy winners. All the features you need for a professional website are already built in, like hosting a custom domain name, dozens of fully customizable design templates, tools to sell your music and merch commission-free, commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, social media integrations, and live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Music Biz Weekly podcast listeners can go to bandzoogle.com, try it for free for 30 days, and use the promo code MUSICBIZWEEKLY, all one word, MUSICBIZWEEKLY, and you'll get 15% off your first year of any subscription. Also, we know it's a digital world out there, but there's still an important role for physical media in today's independent musician. Digital royalty payments are so small sometimes that selling products like CD, vinyl, t-shirts at live streams and eventually gigs will become a more important income generator. So for every CD you sell, you need roughly 3,000 streams to make the same amount of money. That's a lot of streams. Our friends at Disc Makers are the place to go for your discs and other physical media, including vinyl, USB drives, and even t-shirts. So we would like to offer you this special offer. You can get free shipping on uh, CD orders of 100 or more from Disc Makers. Just use the code FREEBIZ. That's one word, FREEBIZ, and get up to $150 in free shipping. Now I'd like to introduce our show today. We have a fantastic guest. We have John Beasley. John Beasley, if you haven't heard, is an amazing pianist. He's a Grammy nominated. Uh, he's band leader, producer of music for film and TV. He's got some amazing records out. He's played with some of the biggest names in the business. And he's just an all around great musician and a great guy. And we're going to talk about how he's staying creative and collaborating during the pandemic, kind of his history, kind of what he's working on. So let it roll. John Beasley. Build a stunning band website in minutes with Bandzoogle. Go to bandzoogle.com to start your free 30-day trial and use the promo code MUSICBIZWEEKLY to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined with John Beasley, a Grammy-nominated pianist, band leader, producer of music for film and TV, musical director, uh, masterclasses, you name it. John, thanks so much for joining us today. It's really a thrill. My pleasure. It's good to see you, Jay. It's been a, been a minute. Yeah, it has been a minute. I mean, the last time I saw you, you were performing at the Blue Whale and you were doing the the Monkestra. Oh my gosh, it was so amazing. First of all, you're playing at a whole different level. Um, you've got musicians that are with you that are just state of the art, really great musicians. But what I loved about that, and we'll, we'll get into your background in a second, but just what I noticed about that night is, yeah, there's a lot of, talented musicians but you you're a sucker for melody i mean you've you can go out there and improvise and it reminds me a little bit of 
when I first started listening to John Coltrane, he would go out there and he would explore, but he'd always come back home, you know? And that's what I noticed about you is that you, it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, and we kind of grew up in the same era, but you're, you're kind of one of those melody guys, right? Sure. You know, um, yeah. And Coltrane really, uh, uh, dedicated himself to really playing the melody straight, you know, he played it pretty straight and then he would expand on that, you know, yeah. uh, he was known for that. Uh, Brantford uh, told me, uh, I guess a couple of years ago now before, before the lockdown and stuff, uh, we're hanging out. Uh, I, I went, I'd gone to see him and his band who's in his, his quartet is awesome. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I noticed that, you know, he, he started off playing very progressive and then he played like some Hoagie Carmichael and um, some New Orleans music and then something, you know, more progressive, you know. Mm -hmm. And after the show, I said, man, I love the variety that you did, you know. And he said, well, you got to give, what do you say? For every every uh, two songs you play that are progressive, you got to give the audience three straight up tunes. You know? <laughs> a little so comfort. Yeah, the formula. <laughs> Well, let's talk about, for those who don't know, let's talk about your background a little bit. I always thought you were kind of a Texas guy, but you were born in Louisiana. Yeah, I was born in Shreveport, which is, you know, less than 100 miles from Texas. Yeah, so tell and us about your, again, we're kind of come from the same era, and I would love to talk about how you got into the style of music that you play. And I, I would bet money, I haven't seen your record collection, but I would bet money that there's... Uh, um, music from all sorts of different genres and artists and things. I grew up having uh, a mom who played classical piano, but I was exposed to, you know, like Peanuts and Vince Guaraldi. I didn't know that that was jazz or anything. To me, it was just music and radio of that era. I could hear, you know, Poco and Pure Prairie League on the same radio station as Earth, Wind and Fire. You know, to, it was just music. Nowadays, it's genre, you know, it's EDM, country, pop, jazz, blues, whatever. Tell us a little bit about your musical journey kind of growing up and how you kind of, I mean, because you play a lot more instruments than piano, right? Uh, I have in the past. I'm, I'm mostly a pianist now. Um, but um, my parents are both musicians. Um, what they play? My dad uh, still plays piano. Uh, but he played bassoon in classical bands and classical orchestras around Texas, and awesome. and also, um, but taught jazz and jazz appreciation, uh, jazz improv and arrangement in North Texas. Later on, when I was, I guess, in my my teens, uh, which is a, a big jazz school in in Denton, Texas, outside of Dallas, and um, so you know, I was always dra being dragged around to rehearsals when I was a <laughs> little kid. My mom was a an educator, performer, but more of an educator, and um, taught junior high, you know, elementary and high school band and orchestra. Nice. And, uh, her father was a was a was a musician, and then ended up being a band director in Southern Arkansas for I don't know forty years or something like that. And um, so, because there's all these small towns that he was a band director in. He would have to like, you know, he would get her to like one semester he needed a clarinet player, one semester he needed, you know, 
trumpet player or whatever. And yeah. she became a really great lower brass player. But um, so she kind of did that with me. And, um, you know, one semester I played timpani and percussion. One, one oh, semester wow. I played oboe. I mean, I played oboe mostly through school. And uh, I played trumpet in the marching band, you know, stuff like that. That is so great. So that's sort of my background. My dad was always playing Bird and Art Blakey and Jimmy Smith, uh, you know. Oh, so you were exposed Elliot, to that. At along with age. Elliot Carter and, and, yeah. and uh, you know, uh, he's a big Beethoven freak, you know, so. Um, did he ever play uh, Felonius? How did you, how did you? Yeah, yeah, he had this record called Work um, that, that was with uh, Sonny Rollins. Uh, I think Percy Heath and Art Blakey and you know I remember like you know being really young hearing that and going you know and it would animate the whole house me and my brother as kids would just be all of a sudden you know just crazy running around the house <laughs> that, that kind of energy that frenetic kind of child yeah. thing in a way you know yeah 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 and so as you go through high school and and college and you you start thinking uh, you know I'd, I'd like to do this this is you know I always say to people about musicians it's not what they do it's who they are and so you kind of discovered that this is who you are um, you had toured with people you know Sergio Mendez Freddie Hubbard um, even did some work with the uh, you know with Miles Davis talk about those years a little bit well that was you know um, I, I'd gotten hooked by the time I was 14 or 13, 14 years old. So I, I was pretending in my living, you know, my bedroom. <laughs> I would play the records and pretend like I was, you know, a musician playing with those guys on the record, you know? Yeah. And um, so, uh, yeah, um, those gigs came because, you know, I, I was always, I always loved R&B music, you know, and, you know, cruising around my friends listening to songs in the key of, of life uh, you know during the high school that's the when that best was, yeah you know uh james taylor records mm. um um what else do we listen to earth wind and fire for sure uh, the best commodores uh ohio players you know we were into all that you know and had bands in high school playing that, that kind of music you know playing r&b music so you know we're from that generation where, you know, Herbie was playing funk and he was playing jazz. Chickaroo yeah. was playing Return Forever. It was all open, man. And you're right, yeah. FM radio played it all. Yeah. You know, those were the days. I mean, what a great experience for you as this young musician to play with some of the greats and to get out on the road and get your chops and just that experience is so valuable. Do you, do you have any, any kind of memories of those kind of early tours or live dates, things that you learned or uh, people you met and things you did? Well, yeah, like, but what, what, I'm, what I'm leading up, was leading up to was that the, that prepared me when I got to LA to basically, I could, I could, I felt like I could do any kind of gig. Yeah, I bet. Because I liked all kinds of music and, yeah, you know, and that's what it was like here, you know, the studio scene and, you know the, the the scene in South Central, the the LA, you know the Valley Beboppers we used to call them, Dante's mm -hmm. those those clubs, uh, they were all happening. And, and when I moved here, you know it was pre DUI, pre 
free home theater. Mm-hmm. You know, so man, there were like 10, 10 major clubs, man, bringing people from all over the world to play here for yeah. like a week at a time, two weeks at a time. Wow. You know, it was, it was, it was amazing. And um, so, you know, I, I ended up meeting this uh, in high school, this guy, John B. Williams, who's a great bass player from New York that came out with the night show. And he, you know, he used to play with Bobby Hutcher and all these people. And he formed a band. And at 18, he asked me to be in his band. Wow. Which was, was, was wild. So I kind of learned from older musicians and doing gigs. And I, I, I played in, um, uh, um, O.C. Smith's band for a long time. He's the guy that sang Little Green Apples. Yeah. But people don't know that he, he, he sang with Count Basie for a long time. Wow. And was a great blues singer. So yeah. I used to play the Parisian Room and Marla's Memory Lane and, and uh, you know, sort of, you know, early R&B, you know? Yeah. And, and met all these great musicians and you know, that's sort of how it works, you know, uh, as a young musician, you meet other musicians on gigs mm-hmm. and they recommend you for things. And then if you get a gig, you recommend them and you end up with this this family of, of musicians that support each other, you know? Yeah, yeah. How did you get into the recording side? Because that's kind of the live performance side and which is awesome. But I would imagine that led to some session work and at some point you decided, you know what, I think I'm going to, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to record my own uh, album. How did that come about? Well, um, yeah, it's funny. It's about being in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Really kind of that classic story. Um, And then learning how to speak up for yourself in my case with the studio work, Mm -hmm. same thing happened with Sergio. I was, I was at a rehearsal uh, with rare Mondo you know, uh, and who stole Mario? I was learning how to play, you know, Montunos with these guys. Mm-hmm. And the percussionist friend showed up and uh, knew about Sergio looking for a piano player or a keyboard player. You know, somebody knew a little bit about synthesizers because yeah. this was in the days long before. This is the kind of right in the beginning. Guys started hiring other keyboard players to play parts. You know, gotcha. Um, so that's you know that's an example how that happens you know so with the with the studio work i was um was playing playing around i I don't think i was playing with freddie yet maybe i no i'd already been playing with freddie a bit and um uh this drummer friend of mine michael jokum uh was in this band was doing sessions for this guy howard pearl and daniel foliard who wrote music for Happy Days, um, Laverne and Shirley, all the kind of mm-hmm. Gary Marshall stuff. Sure. And uh, they had this crazy notion that they wanted to like book gigs around town playing their TV music. So they did, you know, and the piano, the keyboard player, he was probably busy, too busy doing sessions. He was like, nah, I can't do that. But most of the guys, you know, probably felt obligated to to do the gig to keep the, the account going, you know? So I started doing these gigs and after a couple of gigs, um, you know, I heard them talking, okay, see you tomorrow at the next session, you know, mm-hmm. right there. So the next gig comes around a couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks later, 
Sure. And I said, you know, I said to the guy, because, you know, it's, it was fun to play, but it wasn't like, you know, enriching music. Or anything. <laughs> you know, cool. And they're not, they're great guys and great TV composers. But um, I finally said to the guy, I said, you know, um, you know, I'm doing these gigs, you know, but I really like a crack at dude in one of your sessions, you know, you know, don't and ask, he, don't get, he hired me. Yeah. Awesome. That's so awesome. Through him, and through doing those sessions, I met the secretary at Paramount music department, classic story. Mm -hmm. So she starts recommending me to the, the, the head guy and he hires me to, to like, to do Star Trek themes, you know, all in synthesizer. Cause this Amazing. is sort of the beginning of all that, you know, multi sequencing and, you know, MIDI and all that. And yeah, I guess he didn't know anybody else. So, so he called the kid, you know, <laughs> I was probably 22, 22, three years old, 24, something like that. Yeah. And um, then he started feeding me like sitcoms to do on my own. And that's, and then I ended up ending, uh, meeting uh, the contractor at Paramount, a guy named Carl Fortina. And he starts using me on sessions, you know? And that's yeah. how where I met Harvey Mason and Chuck DeMonico and they started recommending me. Uh, so it was really um, kind of luck, you know? Well, I, I think some of it is uh, luck, but my grandfather always said, the, the harder I work, the luckier I get, you know? Yeah. And he was an old uh, jazz horn player. So, you know, yeah, and I think, one, I think that you, you made your luck, you know, by, uh, by working hard. I noticed that you had a record out in 1992 on Wyndham Hill, Cauldron. Mm -hmm. And I remember Wyndham Hill because at the time it was kind of a groundbreaking thing. They called it new age, but I don't think that was really fair because, you know, you had William Ackerman, you had Liz Story and George Winston, and you, you had a whole bunch of great musicians in there creating this kind of new type of music, maybe, you know, that was kind of like maybe jazz in some ways, but also something that we call today chill, you know, which if you have any of these smart speakers, that's kind of the number one search term for music on uh, those right. smart speakers is, you know, chill. How did you, how did you kind of get involved with, with that? What was that experience like? Uh -huh. Well, um, I was um, I was recording uh, with Ricky Lee Jones on Flying Cowboys with uh, Walter Becker. Correct. Wow. Walter started producing and stuff. Yeah. And um, uh, during that session is when Miles called and asked me to join the band. And because my wife at the time was pregnant, a couple months pregnant, I just bought a my our first house you know out in the valley a little starter house and um you know uh i was i was torn because i mean hell yeah i want to play with miles davis i wanted to do that miles <laughs> yeah Davis, you know but here i am in the studio with these guys and you know i'm writing these tv stuff and you know i'm busy you know but uh walter basically i befriended walter and he basically pushed me out the door, said, no, you, you go do that, you know? And um, so in the meantime, while I was on the road with Miles, you know, I was really into the, to writing music. Like I was really influenced by Marcus Miller at that time. Amandala and Tutu, to me, are classic 
great records that he, he did with Miles. And we're also playing that music. So I'm kind of writing some stuff on the road. And, and, uh, and uh, in the meantime, Walter got an imprint with um, Wyndham Hill called Wyndham Hill Jazz. So he produced uh, my first two records, Cauldron and Change the Heart. And Bob Shepard's on that label. Billy Childs is on that label. Yeah, yeah. Uh, probably some other people. I think Tim yeah. Weiss, not Tim Weisberg. Uh, anyway, some other. What Was that your first solo, your own recordings? Yeah. Very yeah. cool. Yeah, you never forget the first. You know, I was, I wanted to ask you about recording now okay we're under we're under a pandemic and yes you can do some things remotely you can do some things socially distance in person um i was talking to stanley clark recently and he was telling me that he doesn't really want to do the remote thing it's not for everyone he mm -hmm. really needs that in-person thing where you know i can look over at you and you know how it is with music a lot of it's a look a lot of it's that relationship that you have with musicians in the studio it's non-verbal and yeah and it's really challenging uh for some people how are you navigating that as you're doing recordings during a pandemic are you doing it remotely and are you doing somewhat, it somewhat i do both um i have to say when when we first uh i was kind of uh, working right up to traveling and stuff right up until the middle of March and then LA shut down. Yeah. And uh, the next thing I did was um, the Tokyo Blue Note did a, a an international jazz uh, uh, remote festival. You know, people from all over the world played a half hour from their homes by themselves. So I did one of those. And, you know, it was fine and played, but man, I felt empty afterward. <laughs> and it, it took me a while to figure out what it was. And it was that I, I couldn't feel the audience. There was no, no response, no, no response. applause, no reaction. Them. I couldn't feel them, you know? And um, I think that's the hardest thing with these streams. I'm doing one tonight, actually, yeah. you know? And uh, luckily it's with a singer. So it's, it's, I'll have somebody in the box. <laughs> Know? Right, um, right. Also, um, you know, I taught all summer. I had a, a student band, an online band, and we couldn't play together. It was impossible. So um, we we had this, you know, we used uh, was a jam band or whatever it's called on Google Chrome. Sure. Lightweight DAW. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, kind of we all taught each other how to overdub and kind of made records in a way, mm -hmm. if you will. Um, but that must have been really hard for them, man, you know, because especially learning music, it's hard yeah. enough if you already kind of can play music a little, you know, without the inter interpersonal thing or the, the nonverbal thing. But if you're just you're kind of still learning, you really need to be with people and stuff. Yeah, so I really, you know, it was a challenge, but they played great. You know, they're kids, man. They're young. They, <laughs> they fight for it. And they... They right. don't know. They just do it, you know? Yeah. They're so growing up in this a, era. Yeah. It's a little nutty. Experience. Um, yeah. I work a lot with the HR big, big band in Frankfurt. It's a German radio orchestra. It's funded by the state. Pretty amazing, man. Awesome. They have four of these. Uh, 
in their country. Anyway, uh, they did a they did a tune of an arrangement of a Duke Ellington. I did everybody in sort of a you know their own from their living room basically. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's cool, but man. Nothing beats that audience though, right? I mean, I've seen people get creative and I think as a musician, you're gonna have a lot more arrows in your quiver coming out of this because people are learning how to live stream. They are learning how to conduct master classes and, and do things that maybe they would have done in person. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think is really creative coming out of this is I've seen artists do these things where there's multiple, let's say there's four artists and they're doing an event together. And so one square, it's like the Brady Bunch, there's four squares. One of them will play and then the other three, when they're done, they will applaud or they will say, oh, I remember that. And they'll talk about anecdotes. And that kind of brings it a little a little bit closer mm -hmm. and the other thing i've kind of been seeing lately which is really interesting is where people are taking live streaming to a different level so it's not necessarily you in your home or in a studio setting some of these artists are actually creating these stages or they're playing at a real venue i yeah. saw one that was doing it in the round so the camera just went around the musicians mm. continuously slowly so you could see the bassist, the percussionist, the horns, you could just kind of, as it goes around, but they're looking at each other. So they still had that nonverbal thing right. as they're playing, you know, to kind of cue them, okay, you're going to take the solo go, that sort of things that you watch musicians do. So I guess that's a long winded way of saying that you're kind of doing this too. You're figuring it out as you go and you're making the best, you know, of this situation. Right. Mm -hmm. So talk a little, you talked a little bit about, you know, this education thing, and I know that's near and dear to your heart. Talk a little bit about what you do with teaching, educating, um, master classes, just trying to kind of give back to younger people. Yeah. Before I do that, but can I just sure. make more comment about, sure, absolutely. About, you know, like we've been overdubbing on records forever. That's right. right? You know, I mean, The Nightfly, overdubbed record, Songs in the Key of Life, all Stevie Wonder playing and everything. So it's not like, uh, it's not like you can't do that, but it's it feels different when you know that you're performing as mm -hmm. opposed to doing a session, you know? It's it's a different, if it's, it's a different animal. And, and yeah. you can make music, you can make great music doing it in any way, you know? Um, yeah. You know, it's, it, it's just a, it's just an adjustment we all have to make. Yeah. And you're right, people are getting creative with it, which is awesome. And yeah. hopefully one day, you know, when, when, when this, this passes, this pandemic passes, you know, um, you can have a combination of all that. Absolutely. Know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I don't mean, think an audience with yeah. a live stream and, you know, it could really grow audiences. That way. I agree. I, I talk to musicians and managers all the time. And that's the thing that they're most excited about is now we've been forced to get out of our comfort zone. We're learning to write remotely, record remotely, do shows, live streaming um, experiences and, you know, and, and then the education thing that we can all do from our house. And to your point, it's probably going to be a combination of those things. So when you go out on the road, um, one of my artists, 
in a non-COVID world, every stop along the tour, they go and meet with the local college or high school and do, uh, you know, kind of a class with mm -hmm. them all, all along the road. Right. And now they can still do that. Maybe sometimes they'll do it remotely. Maybe sometimes they won't. Um, and I also think it's giving more access to you as the artist for your fans, greater engagement, however deep uh, you want to go. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's yeah. really important. So the education thing is, is, is great. You know, there's more young people playing jazz than ever before. That's encouraging. That's amazing. Because isn't that the first thing that's cut in, you know, my wife is a teacher and I hear about yeah. this all the time. Typically, when they're cutting budgets, they cut the arts. Right. And as and it's heartbreaking, but it scares me that people aren't growing up with being exposed to music and playing music. And, and that's encouraging for me to hear that. Well, I think it's mostly uh, mostly on the college level, probably, or, you know, high school where they have funding, you know. Uh, yeah, it's heartbreaking that that uh, actually, I think the literacy, the overall literacy rate in our country is very low <laughs> overall because they stopped funding public education about what Proposition 13 what was that 30, 40 years ago. Whatever. Yeah. Now the roosters have come home to roost. Yeah. Chickens have come home to roost. How yeah. that That's right. So, so yeah, I think it's really important now that we, uh, as as artists, to to, to really. Uh, take our platform and talk about how uh, music and arts education helps everybody in all subjects. You know, it's not, it's not meant there to be, you know, for you to be a professional musician, right? right. For, for you to have a, a learn how to work in a community, you know, work together uh, for a common goal, like mm -hmm. sports. And if you're not into sports, you know, if you're a little geeky like me, you know, mm -hmm. you've got some place to have a social life, right? You know, um, whether it's drama club, art club, whatever it is, and it's proven that math and overall scores um, rise when you have arts, mandatory arts, yeah, uh, from an early age. You know, absolutely. So, yeah. Um, yeah well, that's my soapbox for that. <laughs> well, that's why it's really important. I mean, my parents were music teachers. My grandfather. It's really important for me. To like uh, to go go to schools when I'm on the road, like your friends do, you know, yeah. uh, you know, and 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 try to reach out and and uh, inspire them, you know, to uh, yeah keep practicing and and, and yeah. learning and and, and uh, yeah, and I'm sure it brings you some joy when you see it somebody connect where that clicks, yeah, man. and you can kind of help people and maybe give back a little bit because there were people that coached you along the way and kind of said you know hey kid you know here's exactly. a little bit of that's how that's how uh, jazz is it's, it's we, we bring up our own you know yeah Herb Blakey, all those guys miles always had the young guys in their band man you know yeah. stanley, look at stanley clark now yeah <laughs> been doing that for years now. yeah yeah bands. well i find that musicians are so open that way and i'll give you a comparison I, I do professional photography. And when you talk to photographers versus musicians, if you ask them about their gear or their lighting or 
they're very closed about it. It's almost like a magician. They don't want to reveal their secrets. But if I were to go up to a musician and go, oh, I love that song that you did. And what was that little passage you did? And then they go, oh, well, this is a little arpeggio. I, I found this on this thing. They're so open. They'll even show you how they did yeah. it. You know, yeah. that's what I love. And look, I toured as a musician. I've, I'm not a player. Like I, I look at it as two different types of musicians, guys like me that just love music. And yeah, I can learn a part. If I work, 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 I can struggle through and memorize a part. But, but I like musicians like you who can, I call you guys players, meaning that you can express yourself through your instrument. You can improvise. You can, it's a part of who you are a way to communicate. And I admire that. I, I love that. But that's, that's kind of the difference, you know, as I see it when it comes to musicians, but just on my level, it has enriched my life in so many ways that I can go up to any musician and go, Oh my God, that thing you played that reminded me of, you know, this type of music. Cause my mom played, um, things like Franz Liszt or Rachmaninoff or whatever. Oh, yeah. But my grandfather played yakety sax, you know? And so I can kind of go to people and say, oh my gosh, what is that? How did you get inspired by that? And that's why what I love about your background is you didn't just grow up playing, you know, jazz. You grew up experimenting and playing all sorts of different things. And for the rest of your life, you'll be able to talk to anybody from any genre about music. You can, you know, talk to a stranger at a bar, right? Yeah. No matter how introverted you may be or whatever. That's what I love about that, uh, about music. And to kind of bring this all back home, because I'm going off on a ca caffeinated rant is, I love <laughs> the fact that you're doing the education and, and the master classes, I, I much respect and, and props for that. Thank you. I'd like to do more, you know, uh, when, when things open up, you know? Yeah. I've always so, dreamt of having a teaching position somewhere, you know? Yeah. I think that would be really fun to spend a few years, yeah. you know, uh, uh, really doing it five days a week or something. I think that'd yeah. be amazing. I would yeah. miss performing though. I know I would. Oh. Yeah. So tell me a little bit, you know, where I really discovered John Beasley was, you know, with with Munkestra Volume One, you know, I'd seen your name places uh, because I've worked with a lot of different artists and, you know, I've seen the metadata, you know, and I've seen liner notes and things. So your name wasn't uh, a stranger to me, but it really wasn't until I got into that record and listened to it over and over. And what struck me about it is that it was just, like I mentioned before, so melodic. Um, it wasn't just, there are some musicians that are just on another plane or they're showing off their chops and that's cool with other musicians. But sometimes like we were talking about Coltrane, you got to bring it home. And that's what I loved about that playing. And I love that I got to see it live and hear you talk about it. And then you had, I think it was in 17, you had Munkester Volume 2, which was absolutely fantastic. And then I, what I'd really love to kind of dig into is it seems like it, there's this evolution there. There's this progression. It's not like you're doing monk, 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 you know, 
these records are very different in their interpretations and in their recordings and their performances. I would love to kind of have you talk through that, that progression. And then we can talk a little bit about the uh, Munkestra plays John Beasley, but I, I highly encourage people to go listen to those records. And for me, and you may disagree with this, I think it's almost linear, like you should listen to them in order because it kind of brings you along in this story. Oh, so that's interesting. I never thought of that. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that'd be interesting. You know, there's a playlist somewhere along, somewhere here where, where it's Monk's tune followed by our tune followed by, you know, um, but to, 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 to listen to, to the three records in a row would, uh, that'd be an interesting thing to do. You know, um, the first record, um, was was recorded in two different sessions you know months apart you'd never because, know it well i mean it was by necessity because we were a young band <clears throat> and um you know we were getting uh gigs even without a record you know big gigs uh you know randall up at sf jazz really gave us uh an opening you know it was sort of our first major gig you know he flew us up there um, when you say flew us up, I know you've had different size versions of this. This no. is like yeah. the whole enchilada. Whole well, we've played up there three times now. Fantastic. But, but um, so we, we had this band and we, we, you know, we'd rehearse at the union and we played the blue whale and yeah, we're starting to kind of like get a little buzz, you know? And um, so by this time I've got three tunes, uh, six tunes I can record. So I, I pay for it to go into the studio myself. Um, and um, we, we cut six tunes in one day, man. It was crazy. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I, they sound good. You know, I've, I've, got, I've got rough mixes. Now I can start shopping a deal. So it took, you know, man, almost another year to get somebody to actually say, okay, we're going to do this. And, and it's Denny from Mac Avenue. He, he went out on a limb and signed a big band. And um, so then, so that's an evolution right there. That's, that's the first chunk, right? <laughs> and then, okay, so now I need three more tunes. So I've got to write, you know, and even the, even the difference, uh, not only because it is a different drummer, but the difference in, sort of the writing and, and then and then looking back at those six tunes saying okay what kind of tunes do i need to to like make this whole you know that's an evolution right there um yeah and then um unbeknownst to me he uh denny says okay we want you to put another record out next year like a year from now and i'm like oh okay well <laughs> i've got a year or so but you know i'm working there's there's all this stuff yeah, and and that's leading up to Monk's centennial, a hundred years. Uh, yep, October tenth, which is actually my birthday, ah. twenty seventeen. So because of the record deal, we we got an agent. You know, we got a European agent and Miles Weinstein here mm -hmm. in the states, and they're starting because of the, the the release. They're starting to book all these dates. You know, and we did something like thirty five shows in that year with the big band all with over the, the full fifteen. With the full 15. It was Dear amazing. Lord. 
Yeah. What were you thinking? I know. I know. <laughs> well, you know, I'm glad that it was, was a lot of fun. Party. Yeah, it was totally a lot of fun. It's a walking party, you know, good thing. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I only had really a few months to write, but it was, it was, it was a, it was a little ways from the first record, you know, it was a couple of years maybe from those first arrangements. So what's happened to me since then, you know, I've gotten to know my band. So okay. now I'm kind of learning how to write for my band better, you know, and, and, um, and because practice makes sort of perfect, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting better as a writer to me, you know, uh, as an arranger and, I mean, more bold, you know, okay, that worked. Now I could be even more bolder, you know, and, yeah. and not second guessing, not editing so much, just letting it flow. Yeah. So that's kind of what you hear on volume two. Also, because the band was tight, you know, we're like, got your chops, you're playing, you know, we're yeah. working all the time. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that's, that, that was released in 2017. Mm -hmm. um, volume three was, you know, I started thinking, man, I don't know about doing three records of all monk tunes, you know, it's really sort of pushing it, you know, enough, maybe enough is enough, you know, and, and I, I didn't really play much piano on those first two records, volume one, volume two, uh, and I missed playing. And, um, and then I didn't, there were, it was all monk tunes, you know, it was yeah, none of my, my music. And, um, not my music, but my tunes. Right. Um, um, so I, 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 and I, and it became increasingly hard um, to travel. So we started doing septet um, dates, where I kind of knocked down the arrangements to, to four horns, so we could we could travel, oh, travel internationally better and, and do more gigs. So we started doing that, and. Um, so I, I asked Denny, I, I talked to Denny, I said, well, listen, are you okay? And he said, yeah, as long as you've got monk tunes on there and half the record's big band. So that's, that's what we did for volume three. Uh, we actually cut the record starting in um, July of 2019, actually. Um, and because of uh, you know, their release schedule and sure. other things. Uh, you know, and then COVID, you know, it got, it got, uh, actually got released in August of 2020. So almost a year from, from when we, we finished the record. Yeah. Um, so that's another evolution right there. You know, it's, 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 it's not all Monk, but it's definitely inspired by Thelonious Monk. Sure. And it's, and it's yeah. different configurations. I, I kind of wanted to like, not only just write for a big band, I wanted to change the palette whenever I wanted to change the palette, use synthesizers, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I so, like it. I like it a lot. And I like that you have consistent kind of artwork and branding mm -hmm. uh, throughout the three and it kind of ties them all together and says that even though they're different, they're kind of this body of work that, you know, I think of it as like a box set or a trilogy or, you know, some other thing. They're not exactly the same. And like we said, there's definitely this evolution, but they are kind of a part of this, this era. Um, we're, we're kind of running out of time here, but I wanted to make sure two things. One, I want to know what you're working on now. And 
separately from that, I want to know where, where can people find you? And are you active on socials? Can people reach out and find you? Um, what are you working on and where can people find you? I'll, I'll answer the where, where <laughs> find me first because so I don't forget toward the end. Um, well, I'm on Instagram and uh, Facebook. There's a John Beasley fan page on Instagram. I mean, on uh, on Facebook. I'm a little on Twitter, you know, not much. I'm mostly just kind of, um, you know, whatever I do on Instagram, I, I just pass on, on Twitter because it's, it's just hard to keep up for 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 me for all that. Yeah, uh, I enjoy the dialogue, you know, with especially with my Instagram account. I really, awesome. I really like that. Um, and they can just reach out to your website too if they. Yeah, the website John Beasley uh, JohnBeasleyMusic.com. There's arrangements there. There's, um, you know, all the other records, there's pictures, reviews, awesome. dates, whenever we are able to have dates again. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what's next for you, John? What, what, I mean, you're one of those guys that you're always busy. You're always working on something. You know, it's like, I don't know if you're caffeinated or you just can't sit still. So what's. Well, this summer, we, it was Charlie Parker's 100th anniversary uh, in August. And we, we had dates. And we had a record to do. We had dates uh, uh, booked that, of course, all got canceled. Yeah. And the record got keep getting postponed. It's it's a it's it's a take on it's a modern take on "Bird with Strings," except it's not really the same songs, but it's sort of his. You know, those records he wasn't completely happy with because they're kind of M.O.R. sounding arrangements. He wanted something more progressive. Mm. So we're, and he was very interested in Stravinsky and Berets. And so he was kind of going in this direction. So we tried to pick Charlie Parker tunes or tunes that he was famous for recording. And we used a, a full studio orchestra with strings. Oh, wow. And what was interesting is because of the pandemic, my writing partner uh, is in Sweden. So this is the first time that I'd ever, and first time I ever heard of anybody like sharing an arranger sharing scores and going back and forth. So I would start a vibe and then I'd send it to Magnus. He would kind of tweak it and do and uh, do his own thing and then send it back to me and say, oh yeah, I'll take that. And so we really shared in this, it was, it was amazing. I've done this with songwriting, of course, but not with arranging with the score, you know? Wow. Uh, his name is Magnus Lindgren. He's uh, from Sweden. He's a, he's a fantastic conductor and ranger and, and, and woodwind player. So we just got back from Germany where we, um, we um, recorded the record with the, the SRW uh, radio orchestra. Um, so we were able to do that in the fall because Germany was pretty good up until right when we left. Yeah. Um, and that's what I'm working on. We're going to do um, put some guest artists on it and, and mix in the next few days. Fantastic. Can't wait to hear months, it. I should say. Yeah. John, thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Next time it's safe to do so. Uh, we'll be out to see you live, but continue the great work and much success to you, brother. You too, Jay. Good luck with all this you're doing and, and thank you for supporting the music, man. You got it, man. Thanks right. again. Discmakers.com. Use code FREEBIZ for ground shipping on CD orders of 100 units or more, $150 value.